Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with my fantastic co-host, Ellen McGirt. Ellen, welcome. Oh, thank you. I love those intros, and I'm really excited about our conversation today. Alan, I know that you have been traveling a little bit more than you normally have during the pandemic, and we're here to learn a lot about the future of aviation. Yeah, looking forward to it. We're going to do that with United CEO Scott Kirby. We're going to talk about the vaccine mandate because United is right in the middle of that. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about uh, how airlines are surviving the whole COVID experience generally. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about sustainability because United has made some pretty bold commitments on that. But let's dive right in. Scott, thank you for joining us. Thank you, uh, Alan and Ellen. And those sound like exciting topics to talk about. I suspect you've talked about all of them a little bit, but... But I love it. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's start with vaccines. You may not love that one the most, but I think that's the most immediate. I mean, this whole question of whether to mandate, not to mandate vaccines has been surprisingly, surprising to me anyway, controversial. Can you tell us about how you've dealt with that? Well, it has also been surprising to me that it was controversial because it seemed straightforward, obvious, and clearly just the right thing to do. And United Airlines was the first airline, but really probably the first large brand in the country of any kind of business that required vaccines. We did it well before a government requirement. Uh, We did it. We did it effectively. You know, we were open, honest, transparent about communicating with our team. It was 100% about safety. Uh, we told them that, and I'm really pleased to report that, you know, from the time we announced it in early August to, you know, less than eight weeks later, we got to 99.7%. It has become actually a point of pride for the people of United Airlines. Uh, rather than being controversial, it's in some ways been transformative to the kind of culture that we want to have going forward at United. I'm really glad we're done with it. <laughs> I'm watching yeah. everyone else waffle about, but uh, it's great great to have it in the rearview mirror for us. It's super impressive, and and I apologize for being an annoying journalist, but what about the 0.3%? Well, the 0.3%, unfortunately, are going to be leaving United Airlines and and moving on to to some other career. Uh, I respect their decision to do that, but, you know, at United, when we say safety is our number one core value, we mean it. We don't compromise on safety. We don't compromise on any safety initiatives that we have. Um, I wish we'd have gotten to 100%, but glad that we got to 99.7%. Oh, it is. It's very, very impressive. I want to go back to the beginning of the pandemic because that was really the beginning of your tenure as CEO. And you had had a very specific succession plan. You worked very closely for a, a number of months working alongside the former CEO, Oscar Munoz. I'm curious about first, how did you picture your first 100 days going when you first started thinking about this transition? And what were some of the important points that you thought that you landed that you did really well from May 2020 going forward? Well, when we announced the transition in November of 2019, I certainly thought changing the culture at United Airlines, particularly around customer service and around innovation, 
were going to be critical parts of the future and just building a better airline for customers. But it got dramatically accelerated, of course, by COVID-19. And as I look back on it now, it appears to me what may have been obvious at the time, but certainly obvious in hindsight, that a crisis either tears an organization apart or brings it together. And COVID brought United together. We were really the first airline around the globe to view COVID as a big and serious issue. Uh, really started for us the last weekend in February. That gave us a head start on dealing with COVID. And we've been out in the lead ever since, whether it was on safety initiatives, first airline to require masks, vaccine requirements, lots of other things that we did for safety, whether it was on financing initiatives to go raise money to deal with the crisis, talking to people in Washington, D.C. about how serious this was going to be before others realized it. Just the list of things that United has done during the crisis that we were the first or only airline to do really accelerated. And the things that I thought were going to be important realized that not only were they important, they were the most important things that we were going to do. And I actually wound up telling our board a few weeks ago at our board meeting that I turns out I have the easiest job of anyone at the airline because I really only have one responsibility, and that is to make our employees and customers proud. And if we make people proud – everything else will take care of itself. Um, our customers will care and our employees will do the right thing for them. Um, it turns out to be a pretty simple job. And, and I may have known that a little bit when I started, mm. but the crisis made it my education a whole lot faster. It, but you do make it sound so simple, the focus on the customer, customer service, make the customer happy. I mean, it's straight out of Peter Drucker, right? There's nothing new about it. What happened to it? And I'm not just talking about United. I think it's a, an industry problem. Oh, it's, it's a corporate problem. It's a, it's a big organization problem. We executives overanalyze and overcomplicate simple answers when we know the right answer. I mean, take vaccines as a required, you know, issue. Everyone, I mean, I've talked to hundreds of executives. They all know it's the right thing to do. All of them. But then they get lost in the, but what about, what about, what about this? What about that? And to me, the difference is, at United, we started doing this during the pandemic and I, we've codified it now. We're going to always do the right thing. And once we decide something is the right thing, we say we're going to do it. Then we figure out how. If you worry about the how first, you never get to the decision to do it because the how is often so complicated or feels so complicated, you never cross the Rubicon to get it done. And so we change that and say, if it's the right thing to do, we're just going to do it. It applies to what we're going to talk about on sustainability. We're just going to do it. Then once you've decided that, figuring out how gets to be a whole lot easier. Well, maybe, but how's pretty difficult when you're in the middle of a pandemic and, <laughs> and you know, two thirds of your customers have suddenly disappeared. Well, it was 99% of our customers. Yeah, well, there you go. Only two -thirds. <laughs> 99% disappeared. It is, but it, it also sharpens the mind and the focus. And it proves that if you can do it during a pandemic then you can do it anytime. And that is liberating actually, because, you know, it makes your life easier. You know, once you sit around and you talk about it, you think about it, like this is the right thing to do. Okay. We're going to just do it. It makes the job a lot easier. It makes it more fun. It makes people proud. It makes it easier to communicate um, and be open and honest with people because you're not dancing around the issues. You're just being straightforward and honest. And sometimes people disagree, but they can at least appreciate where you're coming from if you've just got that pretty simple standard. Well, 
there are some details in there, and I'm going to dig around to find some of them, um, particularly around your goal to be 100% green by 2050. That seems like a very, very bold goal for a company that relies on fossil fuels for its living. Tell us a little bit about the two elements in there. Yeah, and our 100% green commitment, by the way, is a different terminology than others use, which is net zero. And the reason is because 100% green means something different to us. It means we're going to get to 100%, but we're going to do it without using traditional carbon offsets. Right. There's really three legs to the stool at United. Uh, one is sustainable aviation fuel and building using you know that industry to replace traditional fossil fuels. That's a big part that's very specific to aviation. Second is technology. And that can encompass a lot of things, you know, more efficient flights, new engines, electric aircraft, as an example. But technology is only going to take us so far because the reality is flying big airplanes long distance is not going to be done with batteries. They simply don't have enough energy density. Um, and no matter how much more efficient you make the engines, it requires a lot of energy to get, mm -hmm. you know, several hundred ton airplane off the ground and to fly it from the U.S. to India. And so that's important. But it's not going to be as big as sustainable aviation fuels. And then the third pillar, I think, is the most important, which is we're going to, as a globe, have to start coming to grips with the fact that carbon, traditional carbon offsets are not going to solve this problem for us. Yeah. Um, and to me, that means carbon sequestration, different ways you could do carbon sequestration. But there's simply not enough space on the planet to plant enough trees to soak up all the emissions that mankind is producing. And in fact, if we planted every square acre of land on the planet that could grow trees, it would account for less than five months of mankind's emissions. And there's nothing wrong with planting trees, but when 99% of corporate America is relying solely on planting trees as their way to say, to market to consumers that they're net zero, it simply won't work. But the problem is that leaves you in a position where you're making a commitment to be green by 2050 that you can't keep at the moment. The technology doesn't exist to get you there. We, we know we're going to have, we do know we're going to have to develop more technology. That's why we are investing in sustainable aviation fuel companies, as an example. Today, United Airlines commitment to sustainable aviation fuel is more than double all of the rest of the world's airlines combined. Really? And we're putting our money where our mouth is by investing in the startup companies that are trying to build this industry from the ground up. I hope that the uh, legislation that will uh, may pass soon is going to include a credit uh, to help with that, but yeah. we're focused on investing in that and on carbon sequestration. I didn't know you were making enough money to fund that kind of investment. Oh my God, Alan. Well, it, it, comes, <laughs> back to doing, it comes back to doing the right thing, you know, and, you know, uh, somebody earlier today told me, you know, that they were amazed that we did all this even during the middle of the pandemic. And they said, even if you think it's the right thing to do, the pandemic was so bad for airlines, it gave you an excuse to not do it. Like, and I said, one of my favorite sayings, I went to the Air Force Academy is no excuses, ma'am. Um, <laughs> and, and so we tried to follow that philosophy and continue to do the right thing, even when it's tough. It's more important to do it when it's tough, because if you prove to yourself you can do it in the hardest of times, then it's easy to do it when times are good. But this is a very interesting new role that you've carved out for yourself because you need to get up to speed on very complicated technologies that don't exist yet so that you can make the right decisions about where to invest and where to invest time, energy, and resources. While you're the exact same person, as I learned, who wrote to every single family who lost um, a family member from COVID. I mean, you are doing two things. You are the personal face of love and support for your employees 
and you're the person who is now in charge of co-envisioning a new technological future. How do you balance all of that in your job? Well, the good thing is, particularly on the second point, I am a longtime nerd, and I'm now at a position in life where I can admit it. And particularly on climate change, it has been interesting to me since I was in college. And I say I'm a nerd, and I really am. I spend about three hours a day on average reading okay. about things that have nothing to do with my job. Okay. And so, okay. you know, it, it's not hard for me to get up to speed because I've spent the last 30 years getting up to speed just because I'm curious and interested on that. Subject. Right. I, I, I want to back up a little bit. Three hours a day reading on things that are not directly related to your job. I do. And, and it's one of the, I think, most important things that if I give advice to people, well, one, you have to genuinely be curious or you won't right. do it. Yeah. You know, but I'm the kid that in fourth grade, I read the encyclopedia from A to Z and because it was super interesting. You uh, learned stuff. I was reading the Hardy Boys, but go ahead. <laughs> In fact, I've convinced my seven-year-old he's been reading something called the, the Bad Guys Club, and I got him his first Hardy Boys book to try to see if he likes Hardy Boys. And we're going to try Nancy Drew. Thank you. Thank uh, you. I was an Nancy Drew person. Well. <laughs> but what it helps you with is, particularly in a crisis, you can connect the dots faster than everyone else. I mean, the last weekend of February when COVID showed up in Italy, I called all of our executive team and said, I don't know why no one else realizes it yet, but this is a global pandemic and we're going to start raising money, figuring out what to do with our schedule, figuring it out before anyone else does. And that'll give us a head start. And I think it's because I read so extensively, it's easier to connect dots that other people don't see Plus, it's just interesting. You learn all kinds of cool stuff if you read a lot. Is there something that someone can do, you know, in the executive world to bring themselves to an employer or a senior leader's attention? That's a similar thing. A person who is a lifelong learner, who's curious, who's connecting dots. Because we're talking so much about new ways of credentializing people, people who are coming not from central casting and finding ways to diversify the workforce. That seems to be a great way to do it. Yeah. So one, I think giving people opportunity is the most important obligation we have to our employees and all people, no matter what background they come from, giving them the opportunity to show what they can do and prove themselves. But to me, I think the most rare talent that I admire and, and look for the most is creativity. And I don't mean artistic creativity. I mean, being able to look at a situation and say, this doesn't make sense. And there's a different way to do this. Uh, and, and particularly to do it in a simple way. Most ideas are simple. Like I don't keep files. I don't like big PowerPoint decks. I don't trust big spreadsheets. I, you know, I tell people, I want to be able to do the analysis in my head. If I can't do it in my head, then I'm a little suspicious of it. And being able to be creative and see, even though we've always done it this way for the last 50 years in aviation or whatever industry you're in, there's a different way to do it, and it doesn't make sense. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte US, which is the sponsor of this podcast. Joe's one of the most thoughtful people I've met on the topics we discuss here every week. Joe, thanks for joining. Alan, pleasure to be with you. Joe, leadership in crisis is very different than in normal times. You have to make these gut-wrenching trade-offs and very fast decisions. What kind of advice do you give to leaders who are navigating these very choppy waters? 
There are a few critical dimensions that have to come together seamlessly. You obviously need to be able to get to the right decisions quickly, and that takes the ability of the executive team and the board to synthesize large volumes of information, to make sense out of uncertainty, but just as importantly, communicate those decisions effectively to take your whole organization on the journey. Demonstrating a sense of calm and confidence, finding that balance of delivering candor and straight talk, while at the same time laying out a vision that's optimistic, instilling confidence that great organizations will come through challenging times with strength. There has to be a light at the end of the tunnel. That's not an easy task. I actually view being realistic and credible around the current situation as the price of admission to be able to talk to your people about a more optimistic future. Joe, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, you know, I, I want to do a little looking back and then I want to do some looking forward, but let's do the looking back piece first. We're getting these great windows into your history and your character. We know you read the encyclopedia when you were in, <laughs> in fourth grade. We know you went to the Air Force Academy uh, and we know you read three hours a day stuff that isn't directly related to the job. Where do you come from, Scott Kirby? What's the <laughs> what's the origin story? <laughs> uh, well, I, I grew up in a, uh, in a small town. It's now a big town, but a small town near Dallas. I had a wonderful parents, a mom who was back then able to stay at home. Uh, she had six kids. I was the oldest. She spent a ton of time with us. I am, my personality is my mother's. I am who I am today because of her. But I also had a father who spent every weekend with me. We either went out to West Texas where his mother lived and helped on the ranch or hunted, went hunting when I was a kid or played golf. I mean, essentially every weekend uh, from the time I can remember in my life, my father gave me his personal time. And we weren't a wealthy family by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but the attention that I got from my parents, uh, as much as anything, shaped who I am today. I do want to ask about, I know that you've, you simple, creative, work it out in your head, no spreadsheets. But I did want to ask you about some scenario planning, because I do know that you've done it. And it's been a thing I've been mm -hmm. thinking a lot about as we're all thinking about what the future is going to look like. And I learned that you'd assembled things that you called a bounce back team. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about what it was for, how you chose people and how you, you allowed them to work that gave you information that you could then turn into action. Yeah, this started really early in the crisis where there was so much uncertainty. And there was this immense pressure at United Airlines to do the normal thing that we did what's the budget for next year? It really started around what's the budget for 2021 going to be, which starts at how much are we going to fly? And then you can go calculate how much it costs. And it's very organized and very structured. And everyone wanted to fall back into that. But we kept saying to each other, but we don't know what demand is going to be. We don't know if COVID will be over, if we'll still be in the middle of it, if we'll be halfway through it. It's impossible for us to know that. And so we cannot have a normal budget process. We eventually decided to completely junked the budget process. And, and we had three pillars. And one of the three pillars was we called it variableize our cost structure, that we had to be flexible and variable. And that then led to some realizations about things we needed to do with our pilot union, but, but also the fact that we couldn't, you know, immediately go back to flying 100% of our schedule, we had to accept that we would gradually bring things back up. And we had to make some compromises on that, but it would give us the downside protection 
with the upside as well. And so then we brought a team together, but also that team was designed to find the unknown unknowns. And it's perhaps the most important thing we did. I mean, if you look around the industry, every single large airline in the last year, except for United, has had at least one meltdown. I mean, literal right. meltdown of right. their operations. And it's because it's complicated. You go, you cut your schedule by 90 something percent, and then you try to bring it back up for an already complex business. That's tough and that's complicated. But we knew it was going to be tough. We knew it was going to be complicated. And we put this team together and we charged them with finding the landmines that we hadn't identified. Mm. The obvious ones we could all go deal with. But go find the things that we haven't thought of. One of my favorite examples was airport badging that the airports were laying off people and the people that were in charge of badging employees, new hires to come in, were going to get laid off. And we said to our hubs, wait, don't lay those people off. We will pay to keep them here because we know somewhere in the future we're going to need them. And if all of a sudden you tell us it's going to take you six months to start bringing employees back, our recovery is going to be six months delayed. And so we're going to spend a little bit of money now in order to be prepared in the future. And there were hundreds of things like that that we had to go find the landmines that we hadn't ever thought about. And the team just did a great job of it. You call them landmines, but not only because of that, it does sound like that comes partly from your military training. Yeah, it's a red team exercise, right? It is a red team exercise. Yeah, and I, I do feel like the military academies and the military in general has been far more serious about leadership far longer than anybody else in our society. Yeah, that's true. If I'd have expanded longer on my where did I come from answer, uh, somewhere in there would have been uh, getting to go to the Air Force Academy because that experience you know, gave me discipline. Um, it gave me the no excuses, ma'am philosophy, which is the best thing that I learned there. But actually, you know, also getting to be with men and women who served in combat. When I was there, a number of the instructors were Vietnam era pilots. Quite a few of them had been shot down. Some of them had been in prison camps. And when you're around people like that who been through that, who've done that, who could tell you those personal experiences. You know, when you then later in your career get to a decision where they've been tortured, you know, about giving information, you know, and made it through the torture without giving it. And then I get to a decision where I've got to decide to do the right thing about vaccines. It's a whole lot easier uh, than what they had to do. And if they could do that, then I can certainly make the right decision about vaccine requirements. You mentioned melting down, and a lot more has been melting down than just systems lately. You've taken back to the air at a time of tremendous personal stress. People haven't, are afraid of the virus. They hadn't seen their family in a long time. Real uncertainty and disruption. Shouting political slogans. There are racial tensions. And it seems that in, in so many ways, the pilots and the, the attendants have a much different role in managing the really difficult things that people are feeling and experiencing and the way they're behaving um, than they ever had before. How, how do you think about that? How are you supporting them and anticipating some of the really tough things that we've been hearing about? So I'll start by saying I'm incredibly proud of the flight attendants at United Airlines and the job that they have done and continue to do because the experience is different than what I read about on other airlines. And while you talk about the challenges of the stress of people getting back out, the reality also is that it is liberating to all of us to be back connecting people and uniting the world. It is so good for all of us as humans to be back reconnecting with people. And airlines are an important part of that. But what we've done is different at United Airlines, I think, is 
work with our flight attendants from the beginning, because we were the first airline to require masks on board airplanes, we knew it was going to be contentious. This was before it was required basically anywhere else. We were about the, one of the very first brands. We knew it would create conflict, potential for conflict and tension. And so we work with the flight attendants and the union to work on de-escalation training. But in particular, I think this is so simple. And most of the big decisions are simple. We gave them a little laminated card that they hand to a customer that's causing problems with masks. And it says, last warning, if you don't put your mask on, you're going to be banned from flying, permanently banned, or banned at least for the duration of COVID from flying United. And we've had to ban about 700 customers. But the vast, vast majority, if they get that card, put the mask on. And when they don't, we don't have conflict in the skies. Um, and so we've largely avoided, not zero, um, but our mask incidents are down by over 50% this year uh, compared to where they were. And we've largely avoided it. And it really is a tribute to the professionalism and the, the ability to connect with people. Professionalism may be the right word, to connect with people that our flight attendants have exhibited. That means the experience on United has just been different than it is on most airlines. So uh, we've done the looking back. Let's look forward. You've already told us that you can't predict what's going to happen in the industry, but I'm going to ask you to anyway. I've been flying. Ellen's been flying. Ellen, you were on a plane yesterday, right? I've made a, a couple of trips. So it's happening more and more. Yeah. But business travel is still down significantly. Do you think we're going to get back to normal? And when do you think we get back to normal? So uh, you can put me in what is still, I suppose, the minority camp. But a year and a half ago, it was a minority of one. I think there are more people that agree with me now. I think business travel is going to come back 100%. Some parts of it will be different, uh, but I think it's going to come back 100%. And the reason is because business travel is about human nature. It is not about transactions. It's about human relationships. It's about, you know, I don't fly to New York to sign a contract with someone. I go to New York to meet my partners, to go to dinner with them, to talk about our kids, to have drinks, to get to know them, because that means Five years later, since you, once you built those relationships, when something happens that you need them, you know each other, you trust each other. You can't build trust in relationships over Zoom. And so I think Zoom is going to replace phone calls. This is way better than a phone call, but ultimately it is not going to replace human interaction and business travel will come back 100%. Yeah. Well, Ellen and I were at the Fortune Most Powerful Women's Summit recently and the energy of those women being together, it was incredible. It was remarkable. I, and yeah, you could see people are just happy to be back and be back together. Yeah. And I'm traveling more now than I ever have in my career. And frankly, I think I took it for granted before. Once you're out and with people, the energy, the excitement, the serendipity, you know, you, the conversations don't go in new directions. You don't get the creativity that you get from being in person and together. When you do a Zoom meeting, it's about subject X. You go through subject X and PowerPoint deck and you go through it. When you're together, somebody says, well, what about, and you go off on a tangent and the big idea happens on the tangent. The big ideas are almost always a tangent. You don't start with, I'm going to go down this narrow path and get to the big idea. The big idea is almost always a tangent, and love, that love only that. happens in person. Love that. That's a great takeaway for this interview. The big idea is almost always a tangent. Scott Kirby, thank you so much. What a pleasure to talk to you, and good luck. Thank you, Alan, and uh, thank you, Alan. Thank you both. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. 
Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 